Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for being with us on ADH. We've got it all for you tonight and some. But look, before I go any further, you will recall last night I reopened what I regard as a quite disgraceful failure by governments here and internationally, in particular the Australian, Malaysian and Chinese governments, over the disappearance of the Malaysian Airlines flight MH370, which went missing in March 2014. This is not a frivolous issue. 239 passengers died, six Australians. The cause? No one knows. And government doesn't care, because I'll tell you something, it appears to be a gigantic cover-up. And over $200 million of your money has been spent. I spoke, though, to the former lawyer and now researcher, Mr Craig Pett. And I want to apologise to Craig, because his name appeared on our screen as Craig Pitt. It's Craig Pett, P-E-T-T. And if you want to read more of Craig's work, his blog is pettblog.com. There it is, pettblog.com. So Craig, my apologies to you. If we make a mistake here, we always seek to correct it. I must say as a farmer's son, I never thought I'd say this, but people have had a gutful of the rain. The Bureau of Meteorology have announced that recent cooling in the central tropical Pacific suggests that cooler than average ocean temperatures would be sustained until the end of the year. Now, you would have noticed this already. It's certainly a bit nippy at night. But they are telling Australia's east coast to get ready for a wet spring. Indeed, wet weather across the country. But isn't it fascinating? The Bureau of Meteorology tells us this is because of the Indian Ocean dipole and the southern annual mode. Now, don't worry about the complicated terms, but dipole forces are attractive forces between the positive end of one polar molecule and the negative end of another. But funny, isn't it? So it is going to rain, but it's not about climate change, according to the Bureau of Meteorology, which of course it isn't. It's just that everything from toothache to tornadoes these days is climate change. All we worry about, as my old man would say, is a bloody wet spring when we've actually had enough. And I did mention during the week that I'm certain it will be the case, the political tide is turning. The public have had a gutful of the alarmism of the left and the false narratives. So Sweden and Italy, I mentioned this week, have moved the political needle. And now we learn that in Canada, there's a new conservative right-wing career politician. He is building membership. And I think we can safely say, Mr. Trudeau, weak, ineffective and woke is on the way out. The fellow's name is Pierre Poilievre, and he was given up for adoption by an unwed teenage mother. He entered politics when he was 25. Last Sunday, he won 68% of about 400,000 votes cast by Tory party members in Canada to win the leadership. Mr Trudeau's personal rating at its lowest level since he first won in 2015. One word about him, hopeless. Plenty for you tonight. I'll make some interesting observations as the memorialisation of Queen Elizabeth moves into its final phase. And I will say, in the years since 1952, when it all began, crowds gathered to wave flags at Elizabeth's appearance. Now those flags have been lowered to mourn our loss. But life must go on. Further evidence of the crisis in education and parents, please stay with us. 
Mark Latham has some extraordinary insights. We'll take leave from the political world tonight because it's a big weekend of sport coming up and including, can you believe it, a rugby test between two of the great rugby nations of the world, Australia and New Zealand, being played tonight, a Thursday night. Does this reek of maladministration and the further erosion in the standing of the great game of rugby and disgraceful, absolutely disgraceful behaviour on our university campuses. We carry on every other day, don't we, about pollution and the pollution of our rivers and our oceans and our planet. Does no one care about the pollution of the minds of young Australians? Stay with me, all that's coming up. You're watching ADH Around the World, and I'm Alan Jones. The pictures which have gone all around the world merely serve to accentuate a level of grief. The Imperial State Crown was placed on the coffin yesterday afternoon in the bow room of Buckingham Palace, which was once a large townhouse built for the Duke of Buckingham in 1703. But what is now Buckingham Palace was acquired by King George III in 1761, but not until the 19th century was it enlarged by architects John Nash and Edward Bloor and became the London residence of the British monarch when Queen Victoria ascended to the throne in 1837. So it's not so very old, is it? What we see is the balcony on which the British royal family traditionally congregates to greet crowds was one of the last major structural additions added in the early 20th century. There are 775 rooms in Buckingham Palace, 188 staff bedrooms, 92 offices, 78 bathrooms, 78, 52 principal bedrooms and 19 state rooms. It has a post office, a cinema, a swimming pool, a doctor's surgery and a jeweler's workshop. Well, mid yesterday afternoon, it's now Thursday morning over there. The coffin was placed on a gun carriage on its way from Buckingham Palace to the gigantic 900-year-old Westminster Hall, where it'll lie in state for four days. It seems so long ago, indeed it is, when on February 6, 1952, Elizabeth and Philip were in Kenya en route to Australia, staying at the famous Treetops Hotel. Elizabeth was watching the sunrise from a platform in the trees, and at that time, an eagle soared above them. It was thought at that moment her beloved father had died in his sleep at Sandringham. The young woman who climbed a tree as a princess descended it as a queen. It was Prince Philip who informed his wife of her destiny as they walked in the grounds of Royal Lodge. When her then private secretary, Martin Chartiris, asked Elizabeth what name she'd take as monarch because that was immediate, she simply said, my own, of course. 24 hours later, all those years ago, the 25-year-old monarch arrived in London dressed in black to be greeted by Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who had served as a soldier in the reign of her great-great-grandmother, Victoria. When Elizabeth took the throne in the following year at the coronation, she told herself, and I quote, I pray that God will help me to discharge worthily this heavy task that has been laid upon me so early in my life, unquote. King Charles in his last days has often reiterated those sentiments. In September 2015, Queen Elizabeth's 63 years and 216 days on the throne broke the record of the longest reign by a British monarch since Queen Victoria. On Monday, June 13, not long ago, the Queen had reigned for 70 years and 127 days, 
surpassing the rule of the late King Pumipon of Thailand, who reigned for 70 years and 126 days. It made Queen Elizabeth the second longest reigning monarch in history after Louis XIV of France. It was James Callaghan, the British Prime Minister from 1976 to 1979, who said of Elizabeth, the Queen offers friendliness, not friendship. Her role was always passive. She didn't criticise, lecture or dictate, but she could and did question. In 1956, it's reported that the Prime Minister, Sir Anthony Eden, told the 30-year-old Queen about the government's intention to intervene over sewers. And she she apparently said, are you sure? For the Queen, (laughs) this was the equivalent of saying, are you mad? There was always a calmness and a sense of restraint about Queen Elizabeth, matched by her constancy and diligence day in and day out, a model constitutional monarch. And now an era has ended. As the body of the late Queen left Buckingham Palace yesterday afternoon, her home for the past eight decades, for the final time before lying in state at Westminster, tens of thousands of people lined London's most famous streets in near silence. King Charles III and his siblings walked behind the oak casket during a 38-minute procession from the palace to Westminster Hall. Prince William, the Prince of Wales and his brother Prince Harry joined their father in a time-honoured tradition of royal duty which saw them walk behind their own mother's coffin in a different circumstance 25 years ago. Put simply, it could not have been easy. The eerie silence was broken only by minute guns fired from Hyde Park, while the coffin moved towards the Palace of Westminster, home of the House of Commons and the House of Lords, the seat of government. The bells of Big Ben, having finally broken free from the five-year restoration project, which cost $137 million, the bells were tolled at one-minute intervals. The closed coffin of Queen Elizabeth now lives in, lies in state, draped in the royal flag and overseen by a 24-hour military guard. Lying in state simply means the coffin is placed on view to the public to pay their respects to the deceased before the funeral ceremony. It is a final tribute for a distinguished leader. The tradition stretches back to the 17th century during the Stuart era. The Queen's father, King George VI, and sovereigns before him lay in state, as well as two former Prime Ministers, William Gladstone in 1898 and Sir Winston Churchill in 1965. The Queen Mother was the last person to lie in state following her death in 2002, but at his request, Prince Philip did not lie in state following his death last year. The coffin now sits on what is called a catafalque, which is a raised platform inside Westminster's Grand Hall, topped with the imperial state crown, adorned with a sapphire, ruby and huge diamond. It'll stay there until 6.30am on the day of her funeral in the nearby Westminster Abbey next Monday. It's a long time since 1952 when it all began. In the intervening years, crowds have gathered to wave flags at Elizabeth's appearance. Now those same flags have been lowered to mourn our loss. Look, may I say immodestly, I know a little bit about education and how to get results, but I'm literally fed up to the back teeth and I feel for parents who don't know where to turn. Everywhere education is discussed, there's talk that the answer is more money 
or teachers need to be better trained or there needs to be less administrative work for teachers. I've got every sympathy for teachers and the confused and confusing world in which they operate, but how can commentators or bureaucrats say with a straight face that Australian teachers work 45 hours a week on average during school terms? 45 hours, where do you get that job? But spend only 40% of their time, that's 18 hours, in face-to-face lessons, working 45 hours a week. Okay, the argument is the rest is spent planning lessons. What's that mean? Check your laptop. Marking exams and assignments, does that really happen? Liaising with colleagues and parents. We now have got a Productivity Commission interim report of its review, we're always reviewing stuff and ignoring reality, of the National School Reform Agreement. Who has heard of the National School Reform Agreement? But it's your money, $319 billion between the Commonwealth states and territories, began in 2019, it runs until 2023, 80 billion a year, your money. And when it comes to education, that's all they talk about, as if money will produce the best student outcomes. I wanted to speak to the Federal Education Minister, Jason Clare. He doesn't return calls, but he also talks about money. And the Productivity Commission says, we need to focus on students who've fallen behind. Well, I'm telling you, and Mark Latham will tell you, every student is falling behind. Every student is disadvantaged. We keep avoiding reality. Australian students recorded their worst results in the 2018 Program for International Student Assessment, that's this, these PISA tests, failing to exceed the OECD average in maths and dropping in global ranking in reading and science. But you've got people like the New South Wales Education Minister, Sarah Mitchell, still talking about funding arrangements. We've just been visited by global education leader, Andras Schleicher, the OECD's Education and Skills Director. He talked about our curriculum making learning, and I quote, often a mile wide, but just an inch deep. Now, it was never like this. Today, we spend about $120 billion on education, 120,000 million. Kids can't recite a verse of poetry. They blink when you use simple words that they've never heard of. They don't know their geography or history. They're told to learn from their laptop. Face-to-face rigorous personal instruction is kicked into the long grass, where once knowledge was hammered into people. That seems to be all over. There's only one politician in the country, one person, talking about this, federal or state. It's the One Nation leader in New South Wales, Mark Latham. And Mark joins me. Mark, thank you always. Thank you for your work. I should just say to our viewers, I had a lot of letters. They said, what's wrong with Mark? Is Mark sick? No, not at all. He's actually very healthy and decided to do something about it. And he's had all the medical reports and you're in good shape. Confirm that for me. Yes, Alan, 100%. Saw the GP yesterday, blood pressure 115 over 65, which is outstanding. And if I'm sick, the only thing I'm sick and tired of is Brad Hazard. (laughs) What about that? (laughs) That's the only thing. What about that? Well, uh, you know, um, he's got a lot to answer for. The truth is that uh, last year he shook hands with the infected Adam Marshall here in the Parliament House on Budget Night at the National Party dinner. And instead of uh, isolating for 14 days uh, like the rules said, the rules that Hazard set, uh, he got off after 24 hours. So he didn't follow the rules mm. that he's imposed upon but millions that's beside of people, the draconian COVID rules. But that's beside the point, millions the language so, towards uh, you when they're going on about oh, bullying. Well, well, yeah, but he, yeah, but he knows that he's as guilty as sin. It was questioning at budget estimates. So to try and distract me, he threw the switch to abuse 
uh, to try and get me to blow up. Blow up. I didn't uh, fall for that old trick. And uh, in terms of his abuse, Alan, I, I've been insulted by professionals over the years, <laughs> and Hazard is not in their league. And I'm afraid it was a case of a health minister who hadn't taken his pills. Yeah. He was off his rocker. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Look, um, we can't not afford not to talk about this, but when are we going to stop talking about money in education and instead talk mm. about what is taught or not taught in the classroom? Absolutely. Anyone who visits a disadvantaged school will know the Gonski Rivers of Gold mean that some of these schools have got more money than they know how to spend. Uh, I've visited a lot of these schools. Jason Clare, the Federal Minister, obviously hasn't visited any because the school leaders will say, this Gonski money, we've got money for this, that and the other thing. I, I visited a disadvantaged school in the Liverpool district where they had so much money. They were um, providing a service for the parents to go to distant Ingleburn to be part of a university experiment, to sit on the floor with their kids, a two-way mirror, uh, sound in their ear, to show them how to be parents playing with their kids on the floor. So, um, you know, when you've got that level of uh, funding, the issues on these failing and disadvantaged schools are not about resourcing. They yeah. are about the, the, the focus on academic instead of yeah. falling for well-being and pastoral care programs. A lot of these schools will say, oh, as long as the kids are happy. Well, Alan, uh, it's good to be happy, but happiness doesn't get you a good job and a, a good working career. Absolutely. They need academic results to lift them out of public housing well, estates, Indigenous areas, disadvantaged suburbs. So that's one big thing, focus on academic results and have teachers teaching, direct instruction from the front of the classroom instead of this new fad of teachers as facilitators, where they walk, walk around the classroom with a cup of coffee telling the kids working in groups they this need to so be self-starting learners. This, this is so I mean, true. This what is Mark, just nonsense. What Stumbling Mark work. is saying, and you've only got to talk to kids, but they'll tell you what Mark Latham is saying is correct. I mean, every three years, the OECD assesses and compares how 15-year-olds from 79 countries are going at applying what they have learned at school through a test called PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment. It's sort of a health check on the performance of our education system, and things are crook, C-R-O-O-K in Australia. Since the first test in 2000, relative to kids around the world, it's been all downhill for our kids. And the last test in 2018, the last PISA, Program for International Student Assessment, tested 14,000 Australian students and found the percentage of illiterate 15-year-olds had grown to almost 20%. Mark, you're the only person, politi politician in the country talking about this. When are we going to stop betraying our kids and indeed our parents? But when are the parents going to start protesting? Well, some parents, the first challenge is to get their kids to school. I was at Walgett High School in Western New South Wales not long ago. It's got the worst reputation in New South Wales, unfortunately. Only 3% of the students there attend the school 90% of the time. On some days, they've got over 50% of the students on truancy just not at the school. So that makes the point. You can throw funding at a school like that, but if the kids aren't in the classroom and the parents don't care, well, you might as well wash the money down the drain in places like Walgett. Now, this is a predominantly Indigenous school. Uh, parental attitudes are a big part of the, 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 the component. If you don't want to send your kids to school, you shouldn't be on welfare. I mean, your primary responsibility as a parent Brilliant. is to pass on Brilliant. a decent education Brilliant. and career prospects to the next generation. And if you're not willing to do that as a parent, you have failed hopelessly. You don't deserve to be a parent. You don't deserve to be on income support. You've got to take responsibility for the next generation. Brilliant. The point that Tony Abbott and Noel Pearson have made over the years, and we need to enforce it. Brilliant. See, 40% in that last piece of test, 40% of Australian students were unable to read 
at a proficient standard. And this decline in literacy has occurred while coalition and Labor governments keep pouring in taxpayers' money, truckloads. You mentioned Gonski reforms. NAPLAN data from 2019 show that after a decade in school, after a decade in school, one in five year nine students couldn't read well enough to get by. Uh, when it, I mean, it's clear that politicians, apart from you, don't read any of this stuff. No, and they find throwing money at schools, our money, taxpayers' money, to be the easy option. Uh, it's easy to throw other people's money, um, even though you know you're not going to get a better result. So uh, on the reading front, uh, we've got to get rid of whole word teaching and have uh, phonics, synthetic phonics, as the only approach. It works. It's a crime against the young person to use a, a bad reading program when better ones are, are, are available. And currently in New South Wales, South Australia, they're introducing it in Victoria, they do the year one phonics checker, basic test assessment of uh, a six-year-old's ability yeah, to sound out words. Sounds of letters, how it yeah, helps them spell. Yeah, well, see, that, Mark, that let me ask you this. Mark, phonics. From this year, this is unbelievable. From this year, the graduating certificates of Victoria's year 12 students, that's they're finished. They're finished secondary school. It'll include a score for their literacy and numeracy. I mean, wouldn't you think after a decade in the education system, you'd be able to actually take their literacy and numeracy levels as a given? Well, it's a, it's a problem. We, we need not only a year one phonics check, we need it in year two and year yep. three. And in New South Wales, Alan, currently the problem is so bad, there's an estimated 17,000 students go from primary school to high school each year and they can't read. 17,000. Now, and, and others with inadequate reading ability. Mm. So the, the, the first responsibility of, uh, of early learning, uh, kindy, years one and two at a school, is not uh, nonsense about Australia Day or Black Lives Matter or genocide or Indigenous or um, gender fluidity. It's to teach them how to read. Absolutely. And schools can do this. If schools just concentrate on the reading programs that work, phonics, these kids will learn how to read, and yeah. that's the obvious well, foundation stone upon which a, a good education and a good life yeah. are based. Well, I'm saying to parents out there, you check your kids, their vocabulary is poor, their geography is woeful, woeful. I mean, they don't know where Gunnedah is, never heard of Gunnedah. They taught European history before they taught Australian history. And now we're going to teach phonics, but how can teachers, Mark, teach phonics if they themselves don't know what phonics is? They're products of a failed system. Yeah, they're products of the university education yep. faculties that are more political than, than, than substance and effectiveness. And, uh, you know, uh, it's a measure of how badly the universities have failed that every second person starting a teaching degree doesn't finish it. They That's are so disillusioned, right. um, uh, so turned away by the faculty oh. that they don't go through to graduate and become a teacher. Whereas uh, non-university um, programs like Alpha Crucis uh, college there in Newcastle and other places, they've got a 95% retention rate for teacher training on them because it's not just sitting in the lecture theatre listening to all this theory. It's like an apprenticeship. Teaching's mm. an apprenticeship where you get a little bit of theory, you test it in the classroom. A bit more theory, test it again in the classroom. Have a mentor. All of it is class-based so that these teachers have got immediate inter interaction. Uh, these student teachers interact in year one with the students in the classroom, they get theory and practice interwoven together. And when you're getting a 95% retention rate, only 5% dropping out, it's a mile ahead of our universities yes, and indeed. we need to put more resources in teacher training into programs like Alpha yeah. Cruises. Well, Mark, we'll leave it there. We, you and I will keep talking. We hope 
we can get a breakthrough somewhere. But this is, I'm saying to mums and dads who are watching out there, this is a crisis. We're talking about the energy crisis. Sure, it's an energy crisis. This is an education crisis and it's affecting your kids in a very real and significant way. This is the man who's addressing it, but he's on his own. He's a one-man team. Mark, great stuff. Glad your health is terrific. Talk to you next week. Yeah, no, it's good, Alan. And we've only touched on about 10% of the problems. You know, there's so many other things to Absolutely. fix uh, our schools. And we'll keep... none of these education ministers have got a clue. Yep. We'll keep talking, my friend. There he is. How impressive is he? Mark Latham, the leader of One Nation in the New South Wales Parliament, should be running education in the country. I thought I might just depart from the dreariness and divisiveness of the political world. We'll have plenty of time to return to that down the track, won't we? But may I just congratulate the Climate Study Group who've taken out an advertisement today, which I've noticed on page six of the Australian newspaper. You'll see it just coming up on your screen. There it is. It's called Climate Realism. Its opening observation is an assertion. Carbon dioxide is a pollutant. You'll note it emphatically says wrong. Then the next one, the return of carbon dioxide is encouraging plant growth, which is correct. Next one, it says fossil fuel emissions can cause a global climate catastrophe, wrong. The next one, the Great Barrier Reef is being destroyed by climate change. Wrong. And right down at the end, intermittent renewables will reduce power costs. Wrong. And the conclusion, see it at the end, the facts do not support predictions of global climate catastrophe caused by carbon dioxide emissions, unquote. I'll tell you something, the public are waking up and the climate change alarmists will be exposed. That said, it's one hell of a weekend to take our mind away from the deep emotion we've felt at the news of the passing of Queen Elizabeth. For many, sport provides that escapism. The legendary trainers Gay Waterhouse and Chris Waller have been invited by Buckingham Palace to attend the funeral of the Queen. The same Chris Waller will be trotting out his champion sprinter Nature Strip at Randwick on Saturday. Tonight, the Wallabies take on the All Blacks at Marvel Stadium in Melbourne. What on earth we're doing playing a rugby test match on a Thursday night, I have no idea, other than it represents a confirmation of how far the game has sunk. It is immensely disturbing. New Zealand are in anything but purple form, and the Australian team is changed every time they hit the paddock. So who knows what will happen tonight? Oddly enough, though, there's a connection between the All Blacks and the showdown on Saturday amongst the nation's best sprinting racehorses in preparation for the Rich Everest. Nature Strip, which has won $18 million in prize money, is part owned by the former successful All Black coach, Steve Hansen, now Sir Steve Hansen, in recognition of his achievements as coach of New Zealand rugby. And while on rugby, congratulations to Australia's all-conquering women's rugby sevens team, who've now achieved the triple crown of victories. This year, they won the gold medal at the Commonwealth Games. They won the World Rugby Sevens Series and last weekend in Cape Town, won the Women's Sevens World Cup. They don't get the credit that they deserve. Well, in AFL, as in rugby league, it's a hell of a weekend. It is possible that no team out of Melbourne makes the grand final. That might sound sacrilege. The Brisbane Lions play Geelong at the MCG tomorrow night. It's the fourth successive season. The Brisbane Lions have reached the finals under coach Chris Fagan. And then the Sydney Swans play Collingwood at the SCG on Saturday at a quarter to five. The smaller SCG may well favour the Swannies. 
Congratulations to coach John Longmire, who continues to do a wonderful job with the Swans. But Collingwood just keeps rolling on. And like Brisbane, it's a hardened team that seems to be able to deal with finals pressure. Well, then there's rugby league. Who would have thought the Storm and the Roosters wouldn't be around? The Cowboys and Penrith are waiting in the wings. They've got a weekend off. A reinvigorated Canberra may well be too much for Parramatta. And Cronulla and Souths could well be decided by refereeing. Just on Cronulla, one of their favourite sons is on tonight in boxing. Paul Gallen takes on two men in the one fight, Justin Hodges and Ben Hannant. They know one another backwards from rugby league, but the question is, can Paul Gallen beat two blokes inside 15 rounds? Two cricket stories, an encouraging comeback by the young former test opener, Will Pukowski, in his first innings since April. People who know this young man say he's a gifted individual. He retired unbeaten yesterday on 193 for a Victorian second 11. And surely it's time to make David Warner captain of Australia's one day team following the retirement of Aaron Finch. Amongst the cricketing public, he's the overwhelming favourite. The new Cricket Australia board should consider the sentiment of the punters and give David Warner the gig. But top billing in a remarkable week of sport belongs to the 19-year-old world number one tennis player and new, new, whoops, new US Open champion, Spain's Carlos Alcaraz. He famously said, there's no time to get tired. Well, hopefully that was the case. He needed four hours and 53 minutes to beat Marin Cilic. He needed five hours and 15 minutes to beat Yannick Sinner. He needed four hours and 19 minutes to beat Francis Tiafo and three hours and 20 minutes to win the final against Norway's Kasper Ruud. He seems a nice young man to boot. I think we could all say sport needs such people. Last week, as you might remember, I was discussing with Daniel Wilde, the articulate and very persuasive Deputy Executive Director of Melbourne's Institute of Public Affairs, an address he had given in Perth, Australia's Green Tape Army, a comparative analysis of the growth of the environmental bureaucracy and the agricultural sector. One of the problems in this game is that you sort of raise a particular issue and it disappears into the ether and out there they think, oh, well, that's it, won't come back and we're safe. Well, I just said to Daniel, we just need to go to this in more detail. I mean, his report says, quote, each year there are more city-based bureaucrats with clipboards telling farmers what they can and can't do than there are actual farmers. Now he alluded to red and green tape strangling Australia's farming future. And I've got to tell you what, these are the people that put food on our table and on the tables of millions of people around the world. And as a farmer's son, can I just simply say, this is reality. I indicated to Daniel that given that our farming sector is under siege, given this net zero nonsense, and that agriculture and transport are responsible for the same quantum of carbon dioxide emissions as electricity generation, the farmer is under imminent attack because this is our legislation. This is our statutory, 43%, 82% of renewables by 2030. Who is going to be punished so that the government can meet its legislative commitment? I promised I'd return to Daniel and he's back with us again this week. Daniel, thank you for your time again. The trouble, as I said last week, is that our productive sector, west of the Great Dividing Range, only has a handful of representatives in the parliament. 
Well, you're right, Alan, that is a, a big issue. So many in Parliament come from a very narrow background. They're either from a lobbyist background or a staffer background or they spend all their life in politics. Very few of them have any meaningful real-world experience. So they don't really understand what life is like, what the lived experience is of those in the productive sectors of our economy, whether they're on the farm, whether they're in the resources sector. They just think that money grows on trees. They don't have a deep understanding of how wealth is created. As you and I talked about last week, when you drive past a paddock of sheep or a field of grain or a cattle station or when you're going past an LNG terminal uh, or a, a, a train full of coal, that is wealth. That is how a new hospital is funded. That is how a new school is funded. Um, that is how new roads are built. That is how we have new infrastructure, whether it's stuff we dig up beneath the ground or what we grow above the ground and then we sell here or overseas and earn export revenue, that is how wealth is created right. and reinvested in our communities. Right. But as you rightly identify, so few politicians have any real-world experience no. or understanding of the mechanics of running a business. No, I mean, you've got a national party, which I think uh, that was a mistake. It should be called the country party because the country, the bush, has no one to legitimately represent them. But they are completely woke. I mean, the bloke who replaced Barnaby Joyce, David Littleproud, has embraced 100% renewables. I mean, this pipe dream stuff, you'll never get there without punishing the very sector he purports to represent. That's right, Alan. And look, the issue with 100% renewables is firstly, it's completely infeasible. But secondly, all of the costs that are going to be imposed. And you mentioned the, the net zero uh, goal, and which is now in legislation. And there's two key issues with that. Firstly, it will unleash a torrent of green group lawfare because every single major project that's approved by the government will now be assessed against the objective of net zero. So any major project that emits carbon could be on the chopping block That's by it. green groups taking these projects to court. Uh, but secondly, as you know, every single major step in the production process in the agricultural sector involves energy, whether it's diesel in your tractor, whether it's electricity you need in your shearing shed or your plant or your, or your packaging factory, whether it's getting your product to market and exporting it overseas, whether it's selling things in supermarkets or the local market. Every single step involves electricity and energy. And if it involves that, it means it's on the chopping block because of net zero. And as you say, the 43% emissions yep. cut by 2030. I mean, the government's got to get there somehow, and it's going to get there through cutting agriculture, yes. transport and, and resources. Well, just taking transport, for example, and I, I don't want to spend time on this because I want to raise something else with you, but just take, I'm, I'm broadcasting to you from a room here in Sydney Everything in this room has been brought here via transport. Everything. Everything that we eat in the mornings, that to go for the coffee shop or go down to have a sandwich at lunch and whatever, it has been the function of transport to actually make it operate as it is. Now, when were they going to tell us to what extent is the punitive attack of government going to make transport virtually unviable? See, I spoke last week to Michael Schellenberger, a world-renowned authority on this, who was once a, a mad environmentalist. And I should say that that is online to our viewers. Uh, the interview has gone absolutely berserk. And he wrote about, quote, the climate scare we've created over the past 30 years. Now, this is farmer that, that Daniel's talking about is going to cover all this, he said, climate change is not even our most serious environmental problem. And he said, once you realise how badly misinformed we've been, it's hard not to feel duped. So, so Daniel, Chris Bowen is taking us on a ride to ruin. 
Well, he certainly is, Alan. If I could pick up on the on the transport point, you've got all these, you know, affluent, woke inner city elitists who want to have electric vehicles. And look, that's fine if you're going for a few kilometres on the weekend or taking your kids to school or the or the footy or soccer match. But what they don't understand is that, firstly, Australia is a suburban society. We're not a European city with high density living. We are a suburban society where we live in our suburbs and regions. So the the European model just doesn't apply to Australia. But secondly, Things like utes and tractors, these are tools of the trade for those on the land. These are not playthings of inner city uh, bureaucrats. So you cannot have an electric powered ute. I mean, what happens when the electricity goes down? Yeah. How are you going to get around? What if there's a bushfire risk? Yeah. What if you're in trouble? Yeah. These are completely impractical solutions for yeah. the reality of life on the land in Australia. Yet all of these ideas are being pushed by inner city uh, leftist bureaucrats who have very little experience outside of the inner city bubble, but they're imposing these costs, as you say, on farmers and on hardworking mainstream mm-hmm. Australian families. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you made that point in that speech you made in Perth that the federal, and you've got to say this slowly, the federal environmental bureaucracy has more than tripled while employment in agriculture throughout the country has declined by a fifth. Daniel, we can't keep heading in this direction. No, we can't, Alan. And let me just give you one example of the kind of red tape that farmers have to deal with every day. I'll give you an example of in Western Australia, if you're a farmer and you want to build one single irrigation pivot, which, as you know, is a big uh, automated machine with lots of sprinklers on it to water crops. You'll see them when you drive past bigger states. If you want to build one of those on your own land, you need no fewer than eight separate licences at the state level alone, plus more licences and conditions at the local level and sometimes at the federal level. Again, that is for one single irrigation pivot, which is absolutely critical to any farmer that wants to manage land at scale uh, at the state level alone on their own private farmland. So this is one example of how bureaucrats intervene into the productive capacity of farmland. You know, if you want to get rid of a single dead tree in the middle of a paddock, you needed approval from a bureaucrat. If you want to use pesticide or fertilisers, you need approval from the bureaucrat. Every single step along the way of trying to get your product grown and transporting it and selling it and getting it to market requires the approval of a bureaucrat of one form um, or another. And as you say, it's simply unsustainable. Well, just before you go, we've got a major political party in this country, ostensibly representing these people, the farmer. Um, You and I are talking about this. Have you heard one member of that party, the National Party, let alone the leader, the brain-dead leader, raise any of these issues in a way which makes people stand up and think we need to take notice? Well, unfortunately, not from the leadership, uh, Alan. I can say that there's people like Senator Matt Canavan who talk about these kind of issues. out of the loop. Yes. They're out of the loop, you're right. But not not in terms of the leadership. It's deeply concerning. And as you say... Uh, there is no one speaking for these people. This no, is this no, is one of the biggest no issues facing not just agriculture Absolutely. but the future of our democracy. Yeah. There are millions of Australians who no do home. not have a voice. They, they don't have, have a voice. They don't have a political politics. home. They don't have a political home. They don't have a political home, and they don't have a voice in politics. They don't have a voice in corporate Australia. They don't have a voice at their schools. They don't have a voice in the media, and they're cancelled and shut down whenever they utter something that might be considered politically. Incorrect. So the issue you've identified about a lack of voice in politics on this issue is a much bigger issue for the future of our democracy. And that's why record numbers of Australians are voting for a third party. I know you just talked to Mark Latham. They're voting yeah. for One Nation, another 
parties like that because they want a voice, they want a mainstream voice that talks about these mm. issues. You won't get cancelled on ADH, I can tell you. That's why we exist. We had, we had to form our own television station to have a voice. Everywhere you turned, there was a legal letter saying you can't say that and you can't say the other. And the interests of those people who are the productive part of Australia are completely ignored. You are a talent and a star and we appreciate you and we'll talk to you next week. And we won't go far away from this subject matter next week either. The more we say it, the more someone might start to understand it, Daniel. Thank you, Alan. Great to be with you as always. Yeah, there he is. He's a talent, isn't he? Thank God he exists. Daniel Wilde. From here, get them all on this on this uh, ADH. He's from the Institute of Public Affairs. As a result of my comments this week about the passing of Queen Elizabeth, I've had some interesting correspondence. Many have commented on the disappointment that Republicans must feel. The polls in favour of the monarchy have risen, and where King Charles once talked to the plants and hot-footed it to Glasgow to say something about climate change, he's made it quite clear he won't be an interventionist monarch. He said in that opening speech at Westminster Hall, which reportedly he wrote, and I quote, it will no longer be possible for me to give so much of my time and energies to the charities and issues for which I care so deeply, unquote. He was signifying that as a sovereign, it'll no longer be appropriate for him to be quite so vocal. He also said in that first speech, and I quote, I've been brought up to cherish a sense of duty to others and to hold in the greatest respect the precious traditions, freedoms and responsibilities of our unique history and our system of parliamentary government, unquote. Well, by addressing the conventions of a constitutional monarchy, the new king was saying he would not interfere or overreach. So the Republican vultures will have to wait for some time down the track if they're going to get a feed. Now, there are many aspects of the late Queen Elizabeth and her family that haven't received a lot of attention and they embody the humanity of the family. Only the day before yesterday, the freshly minted king <laughs> was signing a visitor's book in front of cameras at Hillsborough Castle in Northern Ireland. Now we've all experienced this, the pen was leaking in his hand. Handing it to his wife Camilla, the queen consort, Charles exclaimed, oh God, I hate this pen. Foisting the mess upon Camilla, she responded, look, it's going everywhere to which Charles said, I can't bear this bloody thing every stinking time. <laughs> it must have unnerved him because he was signing documents on Tuesday, but using the wrong date. No surprise there, the punishing schedule, which I've talked about this week, would be tough for someone half his age. It has been relentless. But the one redeeming truth is, he has received a rapturous welcome everywhere he's been. Whether there is a grenade waiting for him up ahead, who knows? Prince Harry has a memoir to be released in a matter of weeks, November, part of a $27 million American payday, and it is happening. It's a great tribute to Australia and our racing industry that our legendary trainers, Chris Waller and Gay Waterhouse, have been invited by Buckingham Palace to attend the Queen's funeral on Monday. Chris Waller was a recent lunchtime guest of the Queen during the Royal Ascot Racing Carnival, and Gay, trained the Queen's top galloper, Carlton House, which ran third in the Queen Elizabeth Stakes at Royal Randwick nine years ago. I'm certain though, when they both dined at Buckingham Palace with Queen Elizabeth, they weren't served drop scones. Now in a wonderful compilation of correspondence deserving of a wider audience, there is a book titled Letters of Note. The first of 125 letters 
is from Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II in her own handwriting, January 24, 1960, to the then American President Dwight D. Eisenhower. January 24, 1960. You'll see it coming up on your screens. There it is. That is her handwriting. What? What about that? There are four pages of the letter signed Elizabeth R, R for Regina, the Latin word for Queen. Now there are four pages of the letter signed Elizabeth R, R for Regina, the Latin word for Queen. Now, on your screen now, you'll see the typed version. And this is a measure of the simplicity and motherly nature of Queen Elizabeth. After all, it's 1960, she's only 33, and she's writing. Dear Mr. President, seeing a picture of you in today's newspaper, standing in front of a barbecue grilling quail, reminded me that I had never sent you the recipe of the drop scones, which I promised you at Balmoral. I now hasten to do so. And I do hope you'll find them successful. Though quantities are for 16 people, when there are fewer, I generally put in less flour and milk, but I use the other ingredients as stated. I've also tried using golden syrup or treacle instead of only sugar, and that can be very good too. I think the mixture needs a great deal of beating while making and shouldn't stand about too long before cooking. We've followed with intense interest and much admiration your tremendous journey to so many countries, but feel we shall never again be able to claim that we're being made to do too much on our future tours. We remember with such pleasure your visit to Balmoral, and I hope the photograph will be a reminder of the very happy day you spent with us. With all good wishes to you and Mrs. Eisenhower, yours sincerely, Elizabeth R. Isn't that wonderful? And look, for all you amateur chefs out there, here is the recipe, which she also sent, drop scones. Ingredients, coming up on your screen, I think. Yeah, here we are. Four teacups of flour, four tablespoons of caster sugar, two teacups of milk. She sent this to President Eisenhower. Two whole eggs, two teaspoons of bicarbonate soda, four tablespoons of caster sugar, and then the instructions. Beat the eggs, sugar, and about half the milk together, add flour, and mix well together, adding the remainder of the milk as required, also bicarbonate and cream of tartar, fold in the melted butter, enough for 16 people. There you are, isn't that amazing? We are talking about a remarkable woman with the instincts of a queen, but also even then of a mother, wife and friend. And now, as London's Telegraph newspaper has so poignantly said, and I quote, after a private farewell for her dedicated staff, the late monarch is passed to the state for the greatest lying in state in living memory. Before we go, I say it often on this program, but we do have to look after our youth. They are our future. That is why the disturbing situation on Australia's university campuses cannot be taken lightly. We're driven witless, aren't we, with endless platitudes about pollution and saving the planet. Who speaks about the intellectual pollution and saving our young minds? Let's start with the University of Sydney. This week, the front page of Sydney University's student newspaper, Oniswa, depicted King Charles identifying the Queen's body in a morgue. Let me say that Oniswa is an abbreviated version of the old Norman French language. The maxim is Oniswa qui mal pense, which basically means shame be to you whoever thinks ill of it. Well, I can't help but think ill of all of this. These are university students who photoshopped an image of the Queen 
stretched out on a mortuary table with King Charles, there it is, standing over her and the headline, Queen dead, Charles next. The article described the Queen's death as gruesome, lonely and painful and joked that King Charles got the chance to, quote, catch up with her after the event, a pathetic attempt at satire. Remember, the authors of this distasteful rubbish are university students funded by your money. Onisquare also published a tweet referencing the death of Princess Diana, which has since been deleted. And remember, this incident came just two weeks after socialist protesters armed with megaphones shouted down former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, shouted him off the campus, in fact, for trying to give a speech to the Law Society. I referred to that earlier this week. Well, the next cab off the rank is the University of Queensland. The situation up there could be even worse. Last week, Barclay McGain, a young monarchist, held a vigil on campus for students who wanted to pay their respects and mourn the loss of Queen Elizabeth II. Well, midway through the vigil, Barclay wrote, quote, a banner emerged from the top of the university towers celebrating the death of the Queen, followed by numerous chants saying, ding dong, the witch is dead. Before long, he said, two people in jackets, masks and hats set upon our vigil, destroying the monument and thieved my personal portrait of Her Majesty, which I have treasured for 10 plus years. As the young man lamented, quote, such is life on Australian university campuses in the year 2022, where dissenting views are shut down, students are intimidated and property is destroyed, unquote. And this came just a few weeks after the University of Queensland's student newspaper penned an article titled, quote, The Subtle Art of Shoplifting. In the piece, an anonymous writer advised readers on thrifting or free shopping which was described as, quote, a legitimate action for the working class to take in the ongoing class war, unquote. The worst part about all of this, we see no action taken by university vice-chancellors who sit on multi-million dollar salaries. And politicians, where are they to get rid of this verbal filth? Defund some of these outfits would be a start, but Perhaps the corruption of our young minds is really what universities are about. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you next Monday night at 8pm. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.